Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. Well, this morning we are going to be resuming a sermon series that we started a couple of weeks ago uh, in the book of 1 Peter. This is a letter from the Apostle Peter to a church living in Asia Minor, think roughly contemporary Turkey. And he writes to them uh, as a people that he says are a people in exile, a people who are struggling and suffering to live out their faith as members of a minority community. Uh, in the midst of the Roman Empire. And so we've called our series A Living Hope. And today we read the passage that uh, those words come from, where Peter reminds us uh, that we do in Christ have a living hope, and we could all use uh, some hope today. And so let's look, uh, if you would, at 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. I'll read uh, through the end of verse 12. Let's go to God's word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and his subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Friends, this is God's word. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us, his children, in love. Hope is perhaps one of the most powerful words in the Christian vocabulary. Hope uh, is what secures us through difficult times, times of testing and trial. Hope is what keeps us moving forward, knowing that the best is yet to come, that we have an inheritance that the sufferings of this world cannot touch. Hope, our hope in the kingdom of God, is what motivates the Christian vision 
for loving our neighbors and seeking to transform our communities and our nation and our world so that it looks more like God's kingdom. We pray and hope every time that we bow our knees and pray for God's will to be done and his kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the power of hope. It's the power of hope uh, that led the civil rights movement uh, in our own nation in the 1950s and 60s. It was hope that compelled Dr. Martin Luther King to give voice to his hope in what he called the beloved community. I have quoted this for you before, but this uh, line is a powerful one. It comes from an address he gave in 1956 in Montgomery, Alabama, following uh, the announcement of a favorable U.S. Supreme Court decision regarding the desegregation of Montgomery's buses. Speaking to a church full of his supporters, he celebrated this result, but reminded them that the hope, the end, the goal, wasn't simply the desegregation of buses. Here's what King said that day. The end is reconciliation. The end is redemption. The end is the creation of the beloved community. It is this type of spirit and this type of love that can transform opponents into friends. It is this type of understanding of goodwill that will transform the deep gloom of the old age into the exuberant gladness of the new age. It is this love which will bring about miracles in the hearts of men. What uh, Martin Luther King was talking about there is what, what he calls the beloved community uh, is in biblical language the dream of the kingdom of God. That time when our hopes for reunion with God and one another will be consummated in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the Christian hope is that the kingdom that we await that day will come to be more of a reality in our lives in this day. It's the hope that the kingdom of God will begin to break into the world through the church. We believe that the church is meant to be a foretaste of the kingdom of God. A foretaste. It's a powerful metaphor that we are an appetizer, a taste ahead of time of what we await in that time. And so that means that if we as a people wait, if our vision for the kingdom is one, which John supplies us in Revelation, if our vision of the kingdom is one in which uh, the Lamb, Jesus, is praised in the languages of every tribe, tongue, and nation of the world, that we should seek that kingdom reality then in our church and in our life and in our world here and now. And then what we taste as a church of that beloved community will spill out and affect our culture and affect our world. That we are a foretaste of the kingdom of God. One way to think of this is in my family, we love to bake. Well, I, I'll put that a different way. Uh, Haley loves to bake and she is wonderfully good at it. And my boys and I love to eat what she bakes. Uh, we will at times help, but very often my help is limited uh, to fighting over the batter that will become the cake or the dough that will become the cookie. Because what do you get when you taste the batter or when you taste the cookie dough? You get a foretaste of what will come out of the oven at some point. 
And so all of the ingredients that make the cookie are in the dough. All of those healthy ingredients of butter and sugar and flour and chocolate, it's all in there. It's in the batter. It's in the dough. And so we can taste it as a foretaste. And so our great hope is that what is in the finished product of the kingdom will be tasted as a foretaste in the church and in our church. That's our hope, brothers and sisters. There's a moment in the Gospel of Luke, uh, Luke 24 to be exact, that contains, I think, one of the saddest scenes in the Bible. Two of Jesus' disciples, after his crucifixion, believing him to be dead, uh, are on a long and mournful walk to Emmaus. When Jesus appears in his resurrected form there with him, but they are uh, blinded to him. He doesn't uh, appear to them to be who he is, the resurrected Jesus. And so Jesus, walking alongside these dejected disciples, says, brothers, why? Why are you downcast? Why are you sad? And they said, have you not heard what's happened in recent days? And then they utter what I think are three of the saddest words in the Bible. We had hoped. We had hoped. We had hoped that Jesus might be the Messiah, the one who delivers our people. Are there any sadder words than we had hoped? Words that speak to the death of hope. Words that speak uh, in the words of Proverbs 13, that a hope deferred makes the heart grow sick. That a hope that we lose the capacity to hope in leaves us more dejected and downcast than we can ever imagine. It's those words of Proverbs 13 that Langston Hughes riffs on when he says, what happens to a dream deferred? We had hoped. These sad words uh, have been often on my mind and in my heart these days. And I know from our conversations uh, that they have been in your mind and your heart as well. That we have all tasted in these weeks the frustrations and the disappointments of so many of our hopes. We had hoped. I hear it uh, in the words of our black members. When you describe the feeling of watching George Floyd's death on film. And see not just his death, but all of the deaths. Eric Garner and Philando Castile and Tamir Rice and Trayvon Martin and even maybe all the way back to Emmett Till. When you see uh, in those images, the, the all too common images of black lives snuffed out on the streets and in the trees and on film, it is a sad reminder of our national history of racial violence of slavery and lynchings and all of that. And I hear in your voices, though we had hoped that maybe we would be somewhere different by now. We had hoped that maybe all of the marching and all of the policies and all of the protests and all of it would lead us to somewhere other than where we find ourselves, we had hoped. I hear it in the voices of our white members we had hoped that it wasn't still this bad. 
we had hoped that maybe we had made more lasting progress than we have made. We had hoped that maybe we didn't live in a world in which racism and its effects were as present and as gripping. And I hear you in your voices coming to terms with that. I think the columnist David French put it well in an article that he wrote uh, this week. He says that there's two things that can be said about America. French is a, a, a white columnist uh, who writes largely about politics, but is also the adoptive father uh, of an African girl from Ethiopia. And he says that there's two things which can both equally be said about the state of race in America. We have come so far and we still have so far to go. And he says prior to becoming the father of a black girl, he tended to place his emphasis on we have come so far. And indeed, we ought to honor that. We ought to venerate and, and celebrate how far we came through the labors and the sacrifices of so many. But he says now as the father of an African daughter and walking with her through her experiences and experiencing with her the pains of racism and prejudice and exclusion, now he can see more clearly just how far we have to go. We had hoped. If I'm honest, I hear those words in my own heart. As a pastor who leads a church and as someone whose own dreams and visions for this church were shaped by the beloved community of Dr. King's, King's dream, and shaped by the multicultural, multi-ethnic dream of revelation of the kingdom of God. Is someone shaped by those dreams, I am struggling with we had hoped. I want to just read to you. Uh, these are words that you can find on our website. Uh, they are uh, public. We are on record and on paper. Uh, talking about what our dream, what our values are as our church. We have four core values. I'm just going to read two of them to you. Reconciliation. The church is an uncommon family. In a world divided along the lines of race, culture, class, and political party, we are called to lay down our lives in seeking the beloved community brought together by Jesus Christ. That's reconciliation. The second value I want to read for you is transformation. The gospel changes everything. There is nothing about us or our world that the gospel won't change. Those words were not written long ago. Uh, they're fairly fresh coming off of a strategic planning uh, retreat with our elders, deacons, deaconesses. And yet they feel in some ways like they were written forever ago right now. Were we naive to hope that we could taste reconciliation in spiritual and cultural transformation in our church and through our church? Were we naive to hope that? I confessed this to Willie the other day that, yes, I do think, uh, honestly, that I have been somewhat naive. Uh, I am an optimist by nature. I think at its best uh, that is a good thing. Uh, at its best, it makes me hopeful and resilient. It makes me able to keep going when things seem hard. Uh, but at its worst, it can be a kind of naivete that leads me uh, to sometimes overlook the depth of the darkness and the challenges ahead of us. And I do think uh, that it was somewhat naive 
When we began articulating our longing for rec reconciliation in a multi-ethnic, cross-cultural, multi-generational fellowship, I think that I have been somewhat naive. And I think that maybe we all have. I mean, the reality is that I do think we have a church that longs for reconciliation, that longs for the diversity of the kingdom to be a reality, but who may not yet have fully grappled with the darkness, both inside and outside, that we will be forced to confront and to work through in pursuit of that glorious hope. We had hoped. On two occasions this week, I had conversations that caused me to despair. Two conversations uh, that caused those words we had hoped uh, to creep up in my soul. One was with uh, a black man who attends our church, who confessed to me uh, honestly that he is glad that we are worshiping remotely still, because he's just not entirely sure that he could be there in person with all of us right now, that it might just be too hard, given everything going on in our culture and even some things that have gone on within, to be in person. And so he's glad that right now we don't have to be. I heard it in a conversation, the second conversation was with one of our white members, uh, a woman who talked of an African-American friend who has been hurt in some ways by the evangelical church and who wants to bring her friend into our church so that she can taste some of the grace and love and wonderful things that she's experienced in our church. But said that she just doesn't feel like our church is yet safe for her to bring a black friend in to know that they will be seen and loved and validated. And friends, as a pastor, those words cut me to the absolute heart. It's our dream as a church to be a church for all people. It's our dream as a church to be a church where all people are safe because they come into the refuge and shelter of our God. A God who extends his wings of protection over us and draws us near to himself. That we are safe with him because our God is our refuge. And it's been our vision from the very beginning to be a church where all sorts of people find that kind of sheltering welcome, where it's a home for churched people and unchurched people, where it's a home for married people and single people, for Republicans and Democrats, for old and young, for white and black. That that's been our hope. Friends, now is the time, brothers and sisters, to have a serious conversation to find out if we are serious about this. Now is what Peter calls a necessary testing of your faith, a necessary testing of our hope. Are we serious about this? And friends, I can speak for myself. I can speak for Willie, with whom uh, Haley and I were with Willie and Sonia just the other night. I can speak for both of us when I say that we are not content to let this hope die with the murmur we had hoped that our church could be something different. We had hoped that maybe we could be a different kind of church, but let's just go and be like those other churches, sorted by ideology and race and culture. Will we, friends, be content to let this hope die with a we had hoped, 
Or will we press into it? To press into our living hope that it can be different. Friends, if we are ever going to be a safe and supportive church for all people, speaking particularly here of a church that's safe and supportive for our black members, it is going to take our white members and all of us together learning how to acknowledge the darkness, learning how to name and to discuss and to talk about racism and its hideous effects in our hearts and our church and in our nation. It's going to take us pressing into the uncomfortable conversation about racism and its effects. Friends, the gospel motivates us to change, not through guilt and shame, but through something far more lasting and powerful. And this is our hope, right? What is it that turns those disciples on the road to Emmaus, what is it that turns their sad, we had hoped, into a joyful celebration? It's when they they recognize the resurrected Jesus. It's the resurrection that transforms them from despair to hope. It's the resurrection that Peter lifts up to his suffering readers in 1 Peter chapter 1. I'll read verse 3 again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Friends, Christian hope, Christian change works through the death and resurrection of Jesus. We have hope and our hope is a living hope because our hope is stored up in a living person. The living man, Jesus Christ, seated at the right hand of God the Father. Christian change and transformation always follows the path of death and resurrection, right? That's how we come to faith is through the repentance, joining Christ in his death, and faith walking out into new life by his spirit into the resurrection. It's how we grow in our faith, isn't it? Those two uh, old Puritan words, mortification and vivification, which means that there's a dying that happens, a dying to sin, a dying to the old self. So that something new can come alive, new life by the Spirit, resurrection. And friends, for us to be transformed as a church, it's going to take us to walk this hard path of death and resurrection. We have to avoid the naive optimism that avoids death. That avoids looking that cross and that tomb and that sin in the eye and walking through the darkness. But we also have to avoid the cynicism that denies the resurrection, that denies that hope and transformation and new life is possible because we live in the kind of world that Jesus has broken open by his resurrection. And so as we press into this, we need to look and to acknowledge that there's stuff in us that has to die. There's stuff that has to die. But like anything that dies at the cross, we realize that it was only something that was holding us back. That our sin and our idolatry and our pride, all of it that we thought was a death, is really a pathway into new life. And so, friends, we are going to talk about three things that need to die if we are going to live in our living hope in Jesus of becoming that beloved community. 
The first thing that is going to have to die is the death of passive indifference. We have to die to passive indifference. And I'm going to try at every step along the way here to root these observations and these calls in the scriptures, which we believe to be the very voice of God to us. But the death of passive indifference means that we are called to empathize with one another and to lament deeply when our brothers and sisters suffer. A verse here, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 25. There may be no division in the body. If one member suffers, all suffer together. And if one member is honored, all rejoice together. Friends, as one body, we are called to mourn when one another mourns. We are called to enter into the lament and the tears and the anguish of one another. Because it is no longer in us and them. It is one body joined together in our living head, Jesus. And if we are united, if we are one body and one family, that means that when one part suffers, we all suffer together. There's a tendency among white Christians, and I say this as one, uh, and I say this, uh, you know, I'm going to talk, I'm going to, I'm speaking to everyone. We're going to have points for everybody in this sermon, but if you're ever, if you ever wondered where we are as a church, our membership as a church uh, is still 90% to just over Caucasian. Uh, our attendance on a Sunday morning is still roughly 80% white or thereabouts. And so, uh, speaking then as a white Christian to a predominantly white body. There's a tendency among us to stay one step removed from the suffering of our black brothers and sisters. We may talk about the problems of racism or the struggles of our black neighbors with a removed distance. We often view uh, these things as societal problems to be solved instead of people to love, family members who suffer together. Our black members and our black neighbors have experienced trauma recently. Trauma in all situations is compounding, right? When you suffer trauma at one level uh, and then suffer trauma again and then again and then again, it has an effect on the soul that is compounding. It's not something that you get used to so the next time it doesn't hurt quite as bad. It's something that seems to pile up and on. And this is the case for all survivors of abuse. But particularly, uh, given our own nation's racial history and racial background, our African-American members and neighbors in recent days have suffered compounding trauma. And we have to learn to lament together, to cry out in sadness and in rage and in longing for justice together. This means there will come a point um, for most of our non-black members, where you will say to yourself, haven't we talked about this enough? Isn't it time for us to move on now? We just preached about this a couple of weeks ago. This was just in the pastoral prayer a few weeks ago. Isn't it time to begin to move on into something else? When would you go to a widow and tell her to stop mourning her husband? When would you go to a bereaved father and tell him to stop mourning his dead son? And that is the reality of what our black brothers and sisters are going through right now. It feels like death in the family, in the home. 
And if Paul's words are to be taken seriously, you haven't begun to empathize until it feels like a blow to your family. Until we can sit in it long enough that those tears become our tears and we weep them together. Until we stop viewing these as either political or societal problems to be solved. And rather enter into it at an, an empathetic and emotional level is our tears to shed as well. My concern here, friends, is that the lament of racism and injustice for us would not be attached to a 24-hour news cycle. We all know by now how this works in our day and age. We enter into a crisis that dominates our news and our social media. In our politicized world, everybody goes to their corner. Opinion pieces are written and then they are responded to. Politicians lever lever leverage the crisis for their own gain. Columns and counter-columns are written. Videos are shot and shared. Blogs are published. Trump tweets. The news rages about the tweet or against the tweet. And then next week, we move on to something else that occupies our attention. And friends, it is imperative that we not make uh, racial lament lament over racial injustice and racism into something that's the cause of this week and then forgotten next week. Our black brothers and sisters in the black church have been lamenting and praising and praying and weeping for 400 years. We can deal with it for another week, for another two weeks, for another three years. We can enter into the long work of patient lament with our brothers and sisters. We can seek to not minimize it or to move on or to explain it away. I heard a conversation with a friend of mine, a man named Alex Shipman, a, a minister in the PCA, our own denomination, who I respect very much. He's a pastor in Huntsville, Alabama. And he was asked on this Zoom call uh, that we were on, he was asked how he responds to, to some things that he hears. And these are things that I've heard. I'm not talking necessarily about just our church, but about things that I've heard uh, in social media these days. He, said, he was asked, how do you respond when in the weight of all of this racial trauma and injustice and pain, how do you respond when people ask you, yeah, but what about all of the black lives taken in abortion? What about them? What about black on black crime? What about absentee fathers in the black family? Why doesn't the church just focus on preaching the gospel instead of talking about racial injustice? And I have heard all of those, and our black members have heard all of those this week and last week. Let me tell you what my friend Alex, a faithful gospel-preaching, gospel-believing minister said. He said, when somebody says that, they assume that I don't care about all that. They assume that I don't care about abortion and I don't care about violence in our streets and I don't care about our families. They assume that I haven't been working on those things. They overlook the labor of the black church over decades in our communities, working to preserve black lives and black families. They overlook all those things. And they assume that dealing with rampant racial injustice is not a part of the kingdom or the gospel. And if you lead a conversation with me that way, you should not be surprised if I don't want to talk to you about these things anymore. Friends, now is not a time for what about. It's not a time for distraction. It's not a time to bring our minds and our eyes to all of these other valid gospel concerns, but to enter into lament.
Perhaps the ultimate biblical narrative of suffering and lament is the book of Job. A book that's in your Bible is Job. It might uh, perhaps be better titled Job and His Three Lousy Friends. Because what happens in the midst of Job's trauma, his compounding trauma of loss of income, loss of his property, loss of his wife, loss of our children, is that these three friends come into his life and they seek to explain why he suffers. They attempt to explain why he, what, he, uh, what he must have done to warrant this kind of suffering. And those friends are very bad friends indeed. And so, friends, brothers and sisters, let's not become Job's friends in the midst of this. Let's enter into, with patience and endurance and heartbreak and anger and all of it, into the ugliness and the shame and the pain of this thing. Let's die to passive indifference. Secondly, we are going to need to die to superficial peace. We have to die to a superficial peace. We have to come to terms with the fact that we live in a world where racism is still very much alive, both on an individual and a systemic level. I'm going to quote here at some length. A, uh, a man, uh, this is, these are quotes from John Piper. Uh, John Piper is about the most uh, conservative source one can go to. He is a 70-something-year-old uh, conservative, reformed Baptist minister in Minneapolis, the greater Minneapolis area. Here's how Piper describes racism. Racism is an explicit or implicit feeling or belief or practice that values one race over, an, over other races or devalues one race beneath other races. An explicit or implicit, which means it's either said and acknowledged or sometimes unacknowledged but operative, feeling or belief or practice that values one race over other races or devalues one race beneath others. And it's clear enough, I think, to most Christians uh, what that looks like in an individual's life, right? Nearly all Christians can, can identify and believe that racism is a sin that needs to be owned and repented of. But Piper goes further. This is how he defines what he calls systemic or structural racism. Structural racism is the cumulative effect of racist feelings, beliefs, and practices that become embodied and expressed in the policies, rules, regulations, procedures, expectations, norms, assumptions, guidelines, plans, strategies, objectives, practices, values, standards, narratives, histories, records, and the like, which accordingly disadvantage the devalued race and privilege the valued race. I know you probably didn't get all that written down. Um, I will post the article in which he puts these things. But that he acknowledges that racism cumulatively is greater than the sum of its parts. That because of its histories and practices and the organizations that it forms and the norms that it makes, that it becomes something that's bigger and deeper and tougher to root out than simply the attitudes of individual hearts that it takes on a life of its own. 
He goes on to say that structural racism is the product of structural pride. And that Christians, biblically informed Christians, should not deny it any more than we ought to deny structural greed, structural lust, structural fear form our institutions, economies, and relationships. Right? That we are formed by forces that are sinful. And those forces come from within us and they act on us from the outside to mold us in their image. This is the world in which we live. One in which race profoundly impacts the quality of our lives. Where the concerns and the problems that we allow ourselves to see and those that we are blind to are profoundly shaped by where we sit culturally. That race dramatically impacts the quality of our lives and the outcome of our lives and our values. We live in a racialized society of our own making. And far too often, we live with an ignorance of these things. Whatever else it is that people might mean by white privilege, it is at least the privilege of living our lives with a blissful ignorance and passivity about the way that race affects our daily realities. And that is a privilege that our African-American brothers and sisters do not have. They feel it in every interaction, in every job interview. When they walk in the door of our church, they feel it. That they are, even if not feeling actively persecuted against, they feel the reality of how race shapes the ways that we interact, the ways that we speak, the ways that we behave. They live with it as a daily reality. I think the prophet Jeremiah frames this for us nicely. When he accuses uh, the religious leaders and the other prophets of Israel, God says this, They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. What he's saying there is, when he says they've, they've cured the wound of my people lightly, is they've put, uh, they've put a band-aid over a cancer. They've settled for a false and superficial peace. They've said, peace, peace. But that peace is as thin as cellophane stretched over an ocean of conflict and injustice. Right? That if we say we live at peace, when there is no peace, we force everyone else to live within the brokenness and the oppression and the oppressiveness of this world that we live in. And so as Christians, we have to press in beyond superficial lip service peace and press in for real transformation, real honest assessment that takes racism and its effects seriously so that we together might experience some measure of transformation. You know, of all of the responses to George Floyd's death, you know the one that I have yet to hear from a black person, from a person of color, is that of surprise. I hear horror and terror I hear sadness and rage. I hear exhaustion. But I've not heard one person of color say, I was shocked or I was surprised. Because for very, for, for I will say, I don't want to absolutize, but I'd say for nearly all, this has been a reality that they live with day in, day out. Every African-American friend that I have in my life has stories 
stories about uh, times that they were suspected unjustly by police, a time they were pulled over when they shouldn't have been, a time that they were uh, looked at askance or handled roughly or spoken to rudely on account of the color of their skin. I remember the first time that this erupted in my life. I lived a relatively sheltered upbringing, uh, a white kid in a, in a almost exclusively white neighborhood and school. And I remember that it was my freshman year of college when, uh, for the first time on a football team that was uh, a diverse white and black football team, when one of my friends, an African-American guy at 19 years old, coming onto the campus of our college was stopped by campus security simply because he didn't look like he belonged on campus. And when he couldn't immediately produce his student ID, which he didn't have on him at the time, the security guard called the police. And I remember sitting with my friend and talking with him about this and being outraged about it with him. And I remember uh, me saying to him that I was shocked and horrified and so surprised that something like this could happen. And of all of the things that he was feeling, surprise was not one of them. Already at 19 years of age, he had become well accustomed to the feeling of being looked at like he doesn't belong, of being looked at like he doesn't belong uh, in what are perceived as white spaces. And so I learned that what shocks and surprises me doesn't shock and surprise my brothers and sisters of color, that it is a reality that they wear. We have to let our hopes for superficial peace die so that a longing for real transformation might take its place. I remember when Willie preached at the outset, uh, it was maybe our second or third week uh, of coronavirus isolation, when he said, everybody's talking about wanting to get back to normal. But Willie said, uh, I hope that we never go back to normal. Right? I hope that we are changed and transformed as a church and as a community through going through this testing of the coronavirus. And friends, I just want to bring that back to our attention where we sit right now. Where we sit with all of the violence that we've seen in these videos of death. The cries for racial justice that we've heard. The, the, the protests and the marches in all of our cities. If you're anything like me, I've caught myself saying, I just want to get back to normal. But we have to remember that back to normal is back to death. And it's back to pretending. And it's back to superficial peace for so many. And so let's not long to get back to normal. Let's long for transformation. Let's long for something greater. And then finally, it means the death of hostility. The death of hostility. Look, there's a way of looking at race in America which would keep black folks and white folks locked in a zero-sum game for power, right? There's a, a way of looking at race in America that says that black and white folks will only ever always be enemies, and that for black folks to be elevated and to get ahead means white people have to lose, and for white people to remain in power means, means that African-American people need to be put back in place. There is a way of narrating this that looks like an eternal struggle between two races. And friends, we have to resist that temptation. If for no other reason than because it tells a lie about the cross of Jesus Christ. 
That the cross of Jesus Christ, as Paul puts it, this um, in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the laws of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Thereby killing the hostility. Praise Jesus. What died on Calvary's cross wasn't just the sin that separates you from God. What died on Calvary's cross is the sin that separates us from one another. It's the sin that separates Jew from Gentile. It's the, it's the sin that separates uh, the Irish and the English. It's the sin that separates the Hutus and the Tutsis and the North Koreans and the South Koreans. It's the sin that separates the, hum the human family. There on that cross, that hostility was put to death so that God might make one new man, one new person out of the diverse family of humankind so that every tribe, tongue, and nation might be brought into obedience to the king, that the hostility might die. If we don't die to eternal hostility, we are bound to live our lives lashed to its wheel because we cannot deny the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel to bring reconciliation and new life into humanity. And it has to start in the church. I, If I'm honest right now, friends, my faith is flagging when it comes for hope of reconciliation in the world. I want to press into it and believe it and labor for it and work for it. But hostility in the church has to die. In a world that clearly has lost the ability to live together, they need, the world needs the clear moral vision of the church. They need the hope that the church has to offer. They need to see reconciliation in practice and the death of hostility. Because friends, when our hostility with one another dies, something new and better takes its place. And let me tell you what that is. That is a common struggle, arm in arm against a common enemy. I was talking uh, to one of our members uh, earlier this week, um, and they were talking about their experience as a veteran uh, in the U.S. Armed Forces. And they told me that the one place that they, they did not encounter racism was in battle, when black and white soldiers worked together against a common enemy. There was no more room to fight against one another because they were facing together towards a common enemy. And friends, the hope of the church is that we will come to stand together against a common enemy. To keep on in Ephesians, Paul puts it this way, Ephesians 6. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. These words have been so comforting and so clarifying for me this week. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Friends, we don't fight with one another. 
Your enemies are not the Republicans or the Democrats. Your enemies aren't uh, the black folks or the white folks. Your enemies aren't the protesters or the police. Your enemy in this are the cosmic forces of evil arrayed against God and against humanity. That, that phrase, the principalities and powers, here it's put, uh, the cos- the, uh, in the ESV translation, they put it somewhat differently, uh, the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Elsewhere, it's the principalities and powers. This Greek expression is Paul's favorite way of describing the way that sin and Satan manipulate human brokenness and sin in order to form idolatrous systems that hold people captive under them, right? So it's supernatural, it's spiritual. These are the schemes of the enemy, but it finds concrete expression in human lives, human institutions, and human power, right? These are the principalities and powers. And the principalities and powers have had many effects in our culture, right? We can we can name them, everything from, uh, I mean, we can name them everything from pornography to a greed that oppresses and, and, and gets over on the poor, right? There are multiple phases and faces that these principalities and powers take. But one of them in American history that over and over again they have taken is these principalities and powers have taken the form of white supremacy. And because the devil is crafty, It doesn't come looking like people in funny robes with white hoods on. It doesn't come looking always like burning crosses and skinheads. That it's much more subtle in our assumptions and our perceptions and the ways that we view certain things as good and others as bad, certain things as righteous and others as less than. And friends, it has damaging and death-dealing effects. It costs the lives and bodies of our black brothers and sisters. And it warps the soul of our white brothers and sisters. And as Christians, we need to name it and to face it and to stand arm in arm against it. Because we fight a common enemy, a satanic enemy, an enemy that would resurrect old barriers of hostility and keep us believing that we are enemies when Jesus Christ has made us family. So friends, this is what it's going to cost. For us to be serious about this, for us to not chalk up these as dreams deferred and say we had hoped, it's going to mean us pressing into uncomfortable conversations. It's going to mean us letting these things die, our passivity, our false peace, our hostility. And I just want to very uh, simply and clearly ask, Have you counted the cost? Have you counted the cost of what it's actually going to take to be a part of this church? Have you counted the cost of what it's going to cost you to be a part of a church that's actively seeking reconciliation? A church that's actively seeking not to hide ourselves from the problems that affect our black brothers and sisters. Have you counted the cost? I know for a fact that our black members have counted the cost. They feel the cost every day uh, when they walk in to worship at a majority white church uh, with white cultural assumptions. Have we counted the cost? Have you counted the cost? Because the cost is deeper than a change in musical styles, 
right? It's a change in starting to sing different songs, right? If you think the if, if you think it's sacrifice to to have to listen to this band play this beautiful music, you haven't begun to assess it. That it's going to take us staring the cross at its face, staring at the tomb, and walking into what feels like death, acknowledging our racism and the racism of our society. We can only look death in the face because of Jesus. And friends, listen, you don't have to fight. You don't have to fight. You don't have to resist taking this honest assessment of racism and its effects. Right? The gospel means that the only thing you let go of when you let go of these things is sin. Right? The only thing that you let go of when you let go of sin is your own prison. The only thing that we let go of is our own blindness. And what we open ourselves to is more and more of Jesus' grace, more of his peace, more of his life, more of his fellowship, a deeper vision of the church. That's what he offers us. That's what's there for us in his cross, in his resurrection. I can speak for, from some experience here. My life was forever changed, largely in my 20s, uh, by two men in particular. Uh, two wise and loving and patient African-American men who became mentors to me. Uh, one was a college professor, a man named Luther Ivory, uh, who taught uh, the theology of the civil rights movement. He had been uh, in that church in Memphis when King gave his speech uh, at the sanitation workers' strike. As a boy, he had pressed in through the window when King said, I may not get there with you, but I have seen, I've been to the mountaintop. He heard that and then became a carrier of that legacy. And I remember him just very patiently sticking with me and walking me through the theology that animated that movement. It was Luther Ivory, then it was a pastor, a man named Brian Loritz, who showed me that, that, uh, that these things, caring about racial equality and justice, was a necessary outworking of the Christian gospel. He was an evangelical, Bible-believing church planter who said that the gospel is bigger and more than just personal reconciliation with God. It's also the straightening out of everything that sin has broken. And they very patiently, very graciously walked me through this to help me uh, begin to see some of the ways that my life was different than their lives had been, the way that I had been immune to some of the concerns that they had never had the luxury of being immune from. And in that, I discovered fathers, I discovered brothers, I discovered a bigger and better world. In that, I discovered a Savior who's capable of taking these sins too. You will never ever uh, in your life with me as your pastor hear me describe myself as woke. Uh, I would never be prideful enough uh, to say that I am uh, woke to the point of seeing things that others don't see or that I've come to some realization that others don't have. But I do hope by God's grace that I am coming awake, right? That I began waking up and I've been 20 years in now of trying to open my eyes to see what's there. And I want to see it. I want to see more of it. I want to see it. I want God to show more of it to me so that I can bring more of my sin, more of my prejudice to the cross of Jesus. And to say these sins too, Jesus, take these. I found some more. I found some more pride. I found some more prejudice. I found some more comfort. Jesus, take these. 
Take them to your cross. Take them into new life. It's my hope for our church, that our hopes will not die. This time will be what Peter calls the necessary testing of our faith, so that we might taste what Peter calls the glorious joy of the kingdom of God. One day in its fullness, but even here in our life together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to hand over to you all of our blindness, all of our sin, all of our shame. We want you to knit us together as one family joined together in Christ. Please, King Jesus, take our lives, take our church. Help us not to give in to the despair that counts hope as dead, but to press into our living hope, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.